welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I don't want to be a negative Nikolai, but is anyone else out there kind of just hanging around, waiting for the axe to fall on whatever Frankenstein immigration bill they're hashing out in the Senate in return for Ukraine and Israel aid? I'm no Capitol Hill expert, but I don't love how there was that mad rush there and everything was so loud for a week or two, and now everything is quiet, with little headlines slipping out here and there from Senators Cinema and Lankford. Seems like true negotiations are afoot in Congress, and historically, those have not come out great for the immigration bar. I know AILA and other organizations have been acting furiously on the Hill, so here's to hoping. Also, if I'm reading the Law 360 update correctly, of which I don't have access anymore, it looks like the Supremes decided to take up the Munoz case this week. That small sliver of hope against the doctrine of consular non-reviewability decided by the Ninth Circuit and discussed on episode 128. Can't wait! Still the most tweets, retweets, and interactions on Twitter that I've ever received. So there's that. Another short week from the circuits and the BIA. I imagine we'll get that avalanche soon enough. But for now, let's enjoy it. Are you tired of answering your own phones? Or of wasting your valuable time on unqualified consultations? Staffy Live is the only 24-7 live receptionist and intake service specialized on immigration law. Staffy Live specialists are highly empathetic, bilingual individuals who know how to deal with adversity, have a background in client care, and are trained to qualify callers by asking the right questions. Staffy Live goes one step ahead in only scheduling qualified consultations on your calendar and then doing follow-ups when needed. Staffy Live is giving a 15-day free trial for any law firm interested with no strings attached. To apply, visit www.getstaffy.com. 
That's G-E-T-S-T-A-F-I dot com. And click on Get Started. Make sure to put in the code FREE. Links, of course, in the show notes. First is Matter of Panin, published by the BIA. It's a Bond case, James Bond. Always a pleasure to dive in to the wonderful world of civil detention. And it's quite the issue. Mr. Panin was born in the Soviet Union and is a citizen of Russia. Not always a given, by the way. Some of those individuals have become stateless. Looks like he's also a lawful permanent resident of the United States, although the decision doesn't say. And in June of 2023, he was charged with federal money laundering and related conspiracy. Indeed, quote, the indictment alleges that the respondent operated a prostitution ring, transported women from Russia and Eastern Europe to engage in prostitution, and laundered tens of thousands of dollars in prostitution proceeds, end quote. Pretty bad, but also only allegations. More importantly to this case, a federal magistrate judge reviewed all of this, recognized that the charges are serious and that Mr. Pannon is not a U.S. citizen and might flee, and still ordered his release from federal custody on a bond of $200,000. Big time federal court. Big criminal allegations. Ordered released, provided that he posted a lot of money in bond. Looks like Mr. Pannon posted it at which point DHS took him into civil immigration custody. I've been told by those in the know, those who have had the pleasure of experiencing both federal criminal custody and civil immigration detention, that there is not that much difference between the two places, at least given certain forms of civil immigration detention, and that actually federal custody is sometimes preferred given the privacy and state of the facilities. The more you know. Out $200,000 but still not released from government custody, Mr. Pannon was probably upset and he requested a bond hearing before an immigration judge. And he got one. But the IJ deemed him both a danger to the community and a flight risk. Now if simply deemed a flight risk, the IJ should have then determined an amount of money that would ensure his future appearances at immigration court hearings. Dare I say $200,000? Sometimes there is no amount that can ensure that someone will appear at a future hearing, but I mean here, a federal judge did already put that amount at $200,000, right? But in any event, if deemed a danger to the community, then the law bars the IJ from ordering any bond at all. Looks like the IJ held that both were the case here. Mr. Pannon was both a danger and an unmitigatable flight risk. So said the immigration judge. Mr. Pannon appealed to the BIA, arguing that the IJ was bound by the federal magistrate judge's findings. Or in Latin legalese, the IJ was collaterally stopped from doing anything other than what the magistrate judge did, which I guess was order a $200,000 bond. The BIA rejected the argument, relying on the, quote, unanimous view of the United States Court of Appeals, end quote. To be honest, I didn't even want to read any further after that, fearing that the BIA would say something crazy like that collateral estoppel doesn't even apply in removal proceedings, which I'd then have to fight and distinguish and litigate for like the next decade. 
But no, it does. Collateral estoppel does apply in removal proceedings. Quote, the doctrine of collateral estoppel can apply to preclude relitigation of both issues of law and issues of fact if those issues were conclusively determined in a prior action. End quote. But the BIA rejected the argument here because it said that it wasn't the same issue between the two bond proceedings. Mr. Pannon's federal court pretrial detention was governed by the, quote, Bail Reform Act, under which the government bore the burden to prove by clear and convincing evidence that he presented a danger to the community, end quote. Immigration detention of this nature, in turn, is governed by INA Section 236A where, in just the cutest of twists, non-citizens have the burden to show that they're not dangers and that they're not flight risks. Can't help but note that unless I'm mistaken, though, the burden actually isn't outlined in the INA, and that it's instead a creature of BIA precedent and DOJ and DHS's own regulations. So that's interesting, right? The burden-shifting distinction that the BIA is making here is actually not a creature of statute? Would love to take that distinction up to the circuit, Mr. Pannon. But anyway, because, quote, the Bail Reform Act and the INA allocate the burden of proof to different parties, end quote, but do they, BIA? Well, the frameworks, quote, serve different purposes, govern separate adjudicatory proceedings, and provide independent statutory bases for detention, end quote. That all has collateral estoppel implications to the BIA. It doesn't apply. They are different proceedings, and so the same issue wasn't priorly litigated in federal court that Mr. Pannon is trying to litigate now before the IJ. The BIA then cites to many a circuit authority for the general proposition that mere release from federal custody does not preclude immigration detention. As such, the BIA issued a nationwide rule, quote, A respondent's release from federal pretrial criminal custody does not preclude an immigration judge from denying a respondent's request for release from immigration detention under Section 236A of the INA, end quote. Rather, the non-citizen must show that he's not a danger or a flight risk all over again. Not a bad fact, though, to have to walk into bond proceedings in immigration court with a bond order from a federal judge. But it didn't win the day for Mr. Pannon here. I wonder, though, why Mr. Pannon couldn't make that showing here, despite his success in federal court. Burdens aside, the BIA's decision doesn't say. But in any event, Mr. Pannon will remain detained. Civilly, of course. And that is Matter of Pannon. That leaves us with United States v. Ortiz Oriana, published by the Fourth Circuit on January 10th, 2024. Here we have before us somewhat of a common concept of late. The circuits seem to be publishing new crime of violence decisions every week in the criminal context, following the Supreme Court's recent decisions in Bourdain and Taylor. I can't possibly do all of them, nor do I desire to do all of them on this immigration podcast. But when the circuit issues a ruling in the criminal context that might be favorable to the non-citizen if applied in the immigration context well, I do feel obligated to review it, given my magnanimous nature. This is such a case. Maryland murder is what's at issue here. 
Lots going on. But for our purposes, we have Mr. Ortiz and Mr. Perez. Mr. Ortiz and others were members of a sub-MS-13 group in Maryland, the Sailors' Clique. It became known that another member of the clique, Shorty, was a government informant, and the Sailors' Clique leader issued a, quote, green light, end quote, authorizing MS-13 members to kill Shorty. All happening in America. And that is exactly what happened at a nightclub shortly thereafter. Mr. Perez did it who also happens to be Mr. Ortiz's co-petitioner in this Fourth Circuit case. Except Mr. Perez killed the wrong Shorty. He killed another individual who was also known as Shorty. Mr. Perez, along with a Mr. Parada, stabbed him to death. Mr. Ortiz also murdered someone in connection with his MS-13 affiliation. He was actually trying to join the Sailor's Clique, and so he and others murdered a rival gang member who lived nearby. Mr. Ortiz fired the gun. Horrible stuff. For our purposes, Mr. Ortiz was eventually convicted of many things, including a thing called a vicar conspiracy to commit murder and discharging a firearm in furtherance of a crime of violence, the murder, in Maryland. Vicar conspiracy to commit murder is one of the rare types of murder-type offenses that is criminalized federally rather than by the states, and it requires, one, that there be an enterprise, two, that the enterprise be engaged in racketeering activity as defined under the statute, three, that the defendant committed a murder, four, that the murder violated state or federal law, and five, that the murder was committed for a pecuniary purpose or for the purpose of gaining entrance to or maintaining or increasing position in the enterprise. So it's essentially gang murder, right? That's what vicar conspiracy to commit murder and vicar murder criminalize? Here, both the vicar charge and the firearm charge are premised on Mr. Ortiz conspiring to and indeed actually committing murder in violation of Maryland Code Criminal Law Sections 2-201 and 2-204. That's why Maryland murder is at issue in this case, even though Mr. Ortiz wasn't actually convicted of that. How could he, right? It's federal court. So is this Maryland murder statute a crime of violence, such that at a minimum, it will support Mr. Ortiz's discharging a firearm federal conviction? Well, under the Supreme Court's recent Bourdain decision, and really the categorical approach generally, quote, if any, even the least culpable of the acts criminalized do not entail that kind of force, the statute of conviction does not categorically match the federal standard, and so cannot serve as a predicate, end quote. Everything's got to be violent and use physical force to be a crime of violence. And that analysis requires consideration only of the elements of the Maryland murder offense, not of what Mr. Ortiz actually did, which was exceptionally violent. And wouldn't you know what the Fourth Circuit recently said in United States v. Jackson that, quote, felony murder cannot qualify as a crime of violence because it requires only the mens rea necessary to attempt or complete the underlying felony, i.e. arson, escape, etc., end quote. Let's back up there. Crim Law 101, right? If you conspire with someone else to commit a felony, but a murder results, even if your partner intentionally murdered the person and didn't plan it with you, or even if that murder was an accident and you didn't know anything about it, you can often be charged with murder yourself. That's felony murder. But that means the Fourth Circuit recently held that felony murder isn't necessarily a crime of violence. 
Because even though a murder must result, the intent, mens rea for you Latins in the ancient sense, need not be. The mens rea is simply that you intend for a felony to be committed, and that felony need not be violent. Doesn't look like the Jackson decision directly analyzed Maryland murder, though. And Maryland lists four ways of committing murder, including felony murder, which in turn lists a limited amount of intended felonies that will qualify, albeit 12 of them. So if you intend or actually do commit one of those 12 felonies and a murder results, you can be convicted of felony murder. But not all of those 12 are violent. And remember that felony murder subsection is actually itself only one of four subsections for Maryland murder. Now in this case, all parties agree that both first and second degree murder in Maryland, the worst types of murder, can be committed through felony murder. DOJ agreed that felony murder will not support a crime of violence finding, at least in the Fourth Circuit, and at least as it applies to Maryland murder. So as the Fourth Circuit has already said that felony murder isn't a crime of violence, Mr. Ortiz should win, right? At least partially? Understandably upset by this result, DOJ argued that Maryland's murder definition is divisible as to the type of murder committed, that felony murder is an element rather than a means of Maryland murder. DOJ argued that a prosecutor in Maryland must prove that the defendant intended to kill and did in fact kill his victim, or instead, that the defendant was intending to commit one of those felonies and a murder resulted. DOJ argued here that while both would lead to a first or second degree murder conviction in Maryland, the way it was committed is an element rather than a means of committing the offense, and so here the court shouldn't be concerned with felony murder because everyone agrees that factually, Mr. Ortiz intended to and did in fact kill his victim. So the Fourth Circuit went through the statute. It explained that the four ways of committing murder in Maryland are specifically listed in their own subsections, and the word or is used just before that last subsection, the felony murder subsection. Not only that, each of the four subsections lists a very different way of committing murder. This all supports a finding that the statute is divisible such that the modified categorical approach applies and Mr. Ortiz will lose. Because remember, he didn't do felony murder, and those other three subsections are totally violent. But that's not dispositive, said the Fourth Circuit. Quote, The focal point of the analysis is what the jury must find, or a defendant must admit, to convict. End quote. That is an important quote for crimmigration practitioners to remember. The focus is on the jury instructions. Everything else is kind of noise, or at best just indicative. And just speaking for myself, I really need to get a bit better at understanding some of these jury instructions. Because man, those things can be confusing. Heck, sometimes they're not even available in a state, or at least not publicly available. But man, are they important to crimmigration now. Maybe even getting expert opinions from public defenders might be an option, as we lowly immigration folks try to explain what criminal juries must actually conclude in criminal court in a state. Because, in fact, during the categorical approach to determine divisibility, courts may also look at, quote, how courts generally instruct juries with respect to an offense, and how the offense has historically been charged, end quote. Whether the analysis actually turns on the mere charging of overbroad conduct, as compared to an actual conviction, or even an actual conviction that survives appeal, 
is up for debate among the circuits and even within the circuits, and I don't even think the circuits know the answer. But hey, here's this quote from the Fourth Circuit. How a state charges an offense is relevant. In this case, quote, Maryland's model jury instructions for premeditated murder and felony murder are distinct, end quote. To the Fourth Circuit, that resolved it, quote, because juries are instructed separately regarding premeditated murder and felony murder, we are persuaded as to the Maryland murder statute's divisibility, end quote. All of this, by the way, despite the fact that Maryland's Supreme Court has apparently been less than clear on the issue. So Mr. Ortiz should lose, right? Or that is to say, his vicar and firearm convictions stand because he was totally charged with and convicted of premeditated murder? Correct. He did lose on these issues. I kind of misread the summary when I downloaded this case, and when I started outlining it, and I didn't want to go back and change things too much because I'm sneaky like that. But there was interesting analysis here, right? And I came this far, so why delete my outline? For what it's worth, Mr. Ortiz did have one of his convictions vacated, because his punishment violated a later Fourth Circuit decision, and then he had another conviction sent back for resentencing because of a later Supreme Court decision. None of which has anything to do with immigration. But I like to be complete. And I have nothing more to say. And that is United States v. Ortiz Oriana. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.